Welcome to Beyond the Shelf. I'm Scott Curry with Chef's Best. We gather to talk about the trends in marketing, retail, and production in food and beverage that are shaping the industry. Joining us today is cultural anthropologist, market researcher, and a storyteller, Sarah Marion. Sarah is Director of Syndicated Research at Murphy Research, where she leads their syndicated research program, including their continuous nutrition and fitness study, State of Our Health, and the World Value Index, which measures the impact of brand mission and purpose. Prior to Murphy, she was Director of Syndicated Research for the Hartman Group. She holds degrees in anthropology plus a Doctor of Philosophy Cultural Anthropology from the University of Indiana. Go Hoosiers! Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So just tell us a little bit more about Murphy Research um, and, and what you're engaged in. And I'm curious to know how you ended up where you are. Oh, sure. So Murphy Research is a, a full-service market research firm. Uh, most of the company is based out of Los Angeles and Santa Monica, but I'm actually in Seattle. We have offices in Minneapolis, D.C., and uh, Dallas, too. So kind of um, all over the place. We've gone fully remote, so... Uh, it's hard to even say that we're even based in Santa Monica anymore. <laughs> it's many companies like that. Uh, so, so why don't you answer this for me? So I should call Murphy research if I need what? Well, if you have a uh, business question that you need uh, research insights for, whether that's B2B or B2C research, um, we specialize in advanced analytics. But as I said, we're full service, so we do everything, qual, quant, everything in between. Um, or if you have a syndicated need, particularly as it relates to mission-driven brands or health and wellness, so food, fitness, and mindfulness. And of course, that's my part of the business. Yes, and we'll get into that. Um, so share a little bit about how you ended up at Murphy Research. Um, you know, you're obviously always had an interest in anthropology, the, mm-hmm. which we could maybe define as the study of humans. Uh, I'm sure you have a better definition than I do. Uh, but share a little bit about how you ended up where you are today. Sure. So I think the study of humans is probably apt. Uh, <laughs> a broad field that has trouble um, kind of policing its own boundaries. Uh, so I originally wanted to be a professor. That's why I got the PhD. Um, but in the course of doing my dissertation research, which had taken me to Los Angeles, um, I kind of saw the writing on the wall about that career path, decided maybe that's not what I wanted anymore, uh, and began looking into market research as an alternative. And that's actually how I started at Murphy Research. They were my first uh, market research job. I went in as an entry-level research associate and never looked back. It was a great fit. Um, it ticked a lot of the boxes um, that uh, I wanted in terms of, you know, I, being an anthropologist, I like to talk to people. I like to listen to them, to understand how they think, to, um, you know, see patterns, uh, big and small. And you get that in market research. Um, I also am kind of a well-rounded student, I guess. So I like both uh, the qual and the quant side. And uh, market research was nice for that as well. Anthropology is, um, uh, particularly culture anthropology, is really quite qualitative. Um, So it was nice to get some numbers back into my life, I think. Um, So uh, I did eventually move to, so my husband's job took us to Seattle. um, And that's when I started work at the Hartman Group, which is a very similar firm, but focused on food and beverage. Um, So I got really deep into food and beverage and I managed their syndicated program there, um, which was really fascinating. Food and beverage is great. I just, uh, 
I'm continually interested by it. Um, it's such a rich topic. Consumers love to talk about it, which is great. Um, and not always true, like of every industrial sector, right? <laughs> uh, and it's fast moving. Um, it's related to kind of deep-seated cultural uh, kind of longstanding trends at the same time. So just really fascinating to me. Uh, in the meantime, Murphy Research had developed their own syndicated business and um, were able to bring me back to manage their syndicated program. And one of the things that was interesting to me was there's um, State of Our Health, which you'll hear me talk about, is a more of a holistic look at how consumers approach health. So in addition to the um, food and eating side, it also covers fitness, exercise, and mindfulness too. Um, so I knew a lot about food and beverage and how consumers approach health and wellness through that lens, but um, adding these other aspects of health on top of that was um, really compelling to me. Mm, you found you found a great intersection for your life, right? You, mm -hmm. you can't... If you study any culture, and I'd imagine this could go back thousands of years, if not more, you, you can't study that culture without talking about food, right? It's the right. rituals, it's the customs, it's the mm -hmm. needs. Um, are probably just it's just different for everyone. Um, so I suppose some congratulations for finding that that sweet spot uh, that allows you to do what you're good at, said research, but also just that. Curi that curiosity that you clearly have always had about people and cultures and how they interact and intersect um, and stuff. So awesome. So let's talk about State of Our Health series. You mentioned a little bit, but let's step way back and describe to me what the State of Our Health series is. Sure. So it's a, a syndicated research program. It's a data source, essentially. Uh, it's the largest that we know of US-based food, fitness, and mindfulness tracker. Um, so it combines quantitative research, which is the main body of the study, uh, but we also do quarterly qualitative supplements as well to make sure we're on top of the trends and to focus in on particular topics. Um, it's subscription-based, so you sign up for an annual subscription and you get instant access to the data, to all of our reports, and um, much more. Kind of in terms of how we do it, uh, so every month uh, we collect data continuously throughout the month. Um, and it's a thousand completes every month. So that's 12,000 a year. And we've been doing this since 2018. So you can imagine like at that level of uh, data collection, we now have a really big, deep data set. Um, so it's deep in that, you know, we can profile even really niche uh, behaviors and attitudes, but it's also um, quite broad. So we have all of this great time series data um, and trending capabilities which, you know, we didn't plan for a pandemic to happen, but... I was saying, uh, 2018, well-timed. Well yes, it was. <laughs> Just enough data before, and, and here you are. Yep, exactly. It's been really useful and interesting in understanding kind of, um, you know, what has changed for the long term, what changed kind of just briefly, what's seasonal. Uh, so we have a lot of great data to back that up. Um, so every quarter we conduct uh, qualitative research as well, focused on a particular topic. So um, the most recent uh, qualitative supplement was about Gen Z. And we wanted to revisit Gen Z, so that's teens and young adults, um, because we had uh, reported on them about a year previously, kind of depth of the pandemic. And, you know, things were going pretty poorly for them. 
And soon after is when all the headlines came out about all the mental health crises that, you know, being out of school and kind of locked out of social life was having on this generation. So we revisited them. Um, but we've also uh, looked into mindfulness uh, to how that affects um, consumers, you know, approaches to food and fitness. We've done profiling reports on uh, differences in gender, on midlife, on millennials. Um, so uh, it helps to, because it's such a broad data set, doing these quarterly qualitative supplements helps us kind of narrow in to focus on a particular um, way we can use the data. Hmm. Uh, so subscribers use it to um, kind of understand and forecast trends, like trends versus seasonality, that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, especially we've gotten a lot of questions around, you know, how and to what extent the pandemic has affected um, attitudes and behaviors kind of across health and wellness, around food, around eating, fitness, et cetera. Um, it's great for understanding differences across age groups, genders, um, and really any other type of, type of subgroup you can imagine. As I said, it's a really big data set. So, you know, if you are interested in moms who do Whole30 and yoga, we can find that person <laughs> mm. um, and tell you what they're like. So if I'm thinking about developing a new product, new product line, uh, I'm trying, maybe I'm not even developing yet, but I'm, I'm trying to think out to, I don't know, 2023. Okay. Where additional sources of revenue coming from? You're able to provide data that gives insight into, I'm not sure if you're forecasting, but you know, if you're seeing a trend, Hey, this is something that people are thinking about. Uh, you may want to develop your products to be able to meet that need, or is is that generally how subscribers might use it? Clearly, you can go as deep as 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 you want with this. You've you've mentioned a few ways, but is is that the general approach that of how people are using it? Yeah, so it's I think that it's really useful for kind of forecasting trends, um, for understanding what's coming. So, for instance, we've been predicting this big kind of return to in person fitness for a long time, and it's. It's finally here, um, not to, to toot our own horn, but because we have, um, you know, we can tell whether this happens, say, every January versus uh, it keeps happening at bigger and bigger levels each January. It it allows us to draw nice trend lines um, into the future. Mm -hmm. But it's useful for answering all um, kinds of business questions. Uh, so often as a kind of less expensive alternative to primary research, right? because we can uh, identify, uh, you know, category purchasers or different types of channel shoppers or people based on kind of how frequently they go out to eat versus cooking at home, that kind of thing. Mm. So investors could use it to, you know, determine whether or not they're going to be a seed investor in something and say, well, is this really the way things are going or is this just a fanciful idea that someone has? Right. And how big the market is for a particular mm -hmm. idea. Um. How how do you acquire the data? So let's say me. All right, I'm, I'm I heard about this, and uh, I'm signing up. Am I entering data into an app? Is it asking me daily questions? What's that experience like that provides you with this high level of integrity with the data? Um, do you mean as a respondent? Yes. Ah, uh, yeah. So uh, we partner with the largest consumer data panel out there. Um, oh. So you, it's a kind of a multi-step opt-in process on the part of the respondents. Um, and then, so that's how we get the, that's how we get our sample for their survey. And then uh, it's balanced 
uh, we're very careful with our data collection. It's balanced um, uh, according to census targets by age, gender, race and ethnicity, income, uh, and region. So we want to make sure we're looking at a you know representative selection of the population. And I, I'm fearing a loss of knowledge from my Stat 200 class in college, but how many? Is it N, right? N? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many folks do you have uh, supplying your data? It sounds like you've, you've thought through it all, but I'm just curious from the listener standpoint. How many oh, like the total use? sample pool? Yes, yes. It's, it's millions. Um, oh, wow. I don't, it's, it's always changing because they're continually adding new, uh, new people and then also cleaning out uh, kind of, you know, all, all of the, these sample sources have bum respondents or, um, people trying to game the system, so it's constantly changing. But it, it it's it's extremely large. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I got it, got it. I got to be in that class for the record. I think. Maybe, 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 <laughs> That's get, an, maybe, maybe get an F in understanding now, but I managed. I'm, I managed to be. Um, what are you mentioned the trend of return to in person fitness um, related to food and beverage a little bit? Um, and but feel free it, health. Mindfulness, food, obviously, are interconnected. Uh, what are two things that you think you know any company out there should know about what you're seeing now and what you're uh, perhaps forecasting with that data now? What I've heard a lot, so I'm not going to try and be the expert. You're here. What What do you think? We're in May 2022 right now. Um, what's on the uptrend, and maybe what's on the downtrend too? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. Uh, so. One of the kind of high level things we've seen, which is uh, nice to put a number on, let's put it that way, is that uh, Americans really have grown more engaged with healthy eating over the course of the pandemic. Um, So we measure that behaviorally and it's self-reported. So it's the behaviors that people believe they do. But I think as a marketer, um, that's where you want to meet them. Uh, and it has increased significantly to the tune of 12 million more people now engaged with uh, nutrition than two years ago, pre-pandemic. Um, it's true across age groups. It's true across genders, but it's much, um, the, the kind of difference is much larger among younger, younger folks. So that's Gen Z, millennials, and kind of younger Gen X. So that means a lot of people, um, a lot of new nutrition consumers, new health focused, you know, food consumers. And they're actually not coming from kind of the non-engaged population. So we're not converting people who weren't engaged in health already. It's people who were previously engaged with fitness have begun layering nutrition or healthy eating in a new way on top of that. Um, So they already have some kind of health foundations and now they're building in the food piece which is different, I think, um, as a population than uh, kind of a person who has never been engaged with health at all. Because we find that once people start uh, combining nutrition and fitness, their engagement with both of them deepens. Uh, so that is, um, that's one kind of exciting trend. I think it's a positive outcome of a, a, a really tough and challenging time. Mm-hmm. Um, how we see that working out in practice is not necessarily new approaches. It's just more intentionality. Um, people say they've become more consistent in their healthy habits. Um, and the reasons for that vary. 
uh, a lot of people talk about it. It was easier to make, it's easier to make healthy choices when you're at home. So they've been home more often. Mm. Um, because it's a lot of young people doing this, uh, the approaches that um, they take are kind of consistent with approaches that, uh, you know, people characterized as uh, kind of millennial before. Uh, it's more about changing the whole approach to food rather than, um, uh, like restricting or adding specific things necessarily. Um, so we've seen uh, increases in people uh, following various types of formal food plans and diets, um, which is slightly different than people being on a diet, which I can talk about in a minute. Um, rise in intermittent fasting, uh, more people eating vegetarian or vegan, um, especially among younger folks, uh, they're buying, they're saying that a greater share of their groceries are organic. So it's kind of a, a rise in more holistic approaches to nutrition rather than, um, you know, a lot of, a lot more people restricting sugar, for instance. Hmm. It's the massive generational difference there, you know? If you... Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, the reason I think that's important is because this, the bulk of these like newly engaged consumers are coming from younger generations uh, th that approach is going to look different from older folks who are much more um, likely to invest in nutrition in those ways by restricting uh, saturated fat, by restricting sodium, by restricting sugar. Uh, very like uh, older traditional. Yes, these very uh, specific. They, yeah, uh, almost interventions. Um, yeah, the interventions that are that are. I don't know. I don't want to say the not based in fact, but, you know, I remember growing up, it's like, it's the like, eat less fat, maybe, mm -hmm. it, whereas that that's just, it, it's like trying to throw a dart and hit something as opposed to being healthier, you know, yes. and yep. where we're hearing about the younger generations, which I'd like you to define, because I think it's important for people to understand where they are. I don't think you're talking only about 17, 18 year olds that you're probably talking about, you know, under 40. And guess what? Those people are starting families, heading into their higher income uh, stages. They'll be the, the next managers, CEOs. They're going to be the tone setters moving forward. And I believe that we have become a little bit accustomed to think of these younger generations as still being younger when it it's like, no, we've been saying they're younger for 15 years. Guess what? <laughs> they're, they're 38 now. They're, You're they're exactly right. They're, they're earning, you know, they're buying a home. They're earning. Is that true? Yes, you're exactly right. So when I say younger, I basically mean under about age 45. Uh, so I'm check, I'm like the oldest millennial, right? So I turned. I'm right there. I just had a birthday. Yep, I turned <laughs> last year. So I'm one of these kids, but I'm not a kid, obviously. Um, so one of the things uh, uh, that happened in the pandemic, you know, this part of this shift that I just mentioned is that millennials in particular came out way better than before in terms of how engaged they were in health. So more of them like became engaged at all uh, with um, food or fitness or mindfulness. Um, and then more of them also started building in more layers to that engagement. So moving from fitness to fitness and nutrition, and a lot of them moving also into kind of the trifecta of fitness, nutrition, and mindfulness. When I say nutrition, I just mean kind of engagement with healthy eating. And, and just to confirm, you're seeing this across, you're seeing this across all 
socioeconomic and regional as well? Or is this a little bit of a urban divide or it, how, how do you see it breaking out? Or I'm, I'm making a horrible assumption here that, you know, perhaps lower income folks might not eat or think is healthy. Are you seeing it across everywhere? And I'm, I'm hopeful that you're going to say you are. Um, yes, in general, in general, we are. So I think, you know, there's a, a slight skew, you know, towards the West Coast or the Northeast. But, sure. um, but in fact, the South is it's the biggest region in terms of population. And it's also very young. So that's where a lot of millennials live and they want the same things. Um, they have the same approach to food as uh, kind of their generation does nationwide. So, no, I would not say that it's restricted to uh, a particular class or a particular particular region. Um, it's a, it's a trend that we've seen that is broad and kind of nationwide. Hmm. And then so the, that, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to ask if you, if another trend, or maybe you can, cause you just, we just used a really broad brush on that one. Um, maybe something that really surprised you, a piece of data that you said, wow, I didn't expect that. And that, that really surprised you. That's a great question. People actually ask me that a lot. And because I am moving around in this data like every day, it's really it's We really expect you to know everything. That's why. <laughs> but, um, uh, but I will say that, uh, so the other kind of broad trend that I think is um, going to be with us for a long time and will, it definitely shapes how people approach um, food everything about the way that they approach food actually is the growth in mindfulness. Um, and so that has continued to grow through the pandemic. Um, you know, people started, uh, they got engaged with it early on. There's a little bit of a drop off, but um, the people who started doing it, they mean it. And more and more people are getting engaged with various types of uh, mindfulness practices. And again, we find that we define that behaviorally and it's pretty broad. Um, so mindfulness, because this can mean so many things. Um, so we define a mindfulness engaged person as anybody who reports that they meditate, um, track their mindfulness with an app, um, do yoga or mindful movement, you know, specifically for mindfulness or have some kind of journaling or gratitude ritual on a weekly basis or more. Uh, so we want it to be kind of clear about what we considered mindfulness, just so we could get a handle on this trend. Um, and so this past winter, which was a tough winter because um, the Omicron wave hit us so fast. So all of the, um, we saw downticks as we usually do in terms of engagement with healthy eating that happens a lot at the holidays, but a major downtrend in um, fitness and exercise um, and we think that it's because simply everybody was sick or taking care of somebody was, who was sick or, you know, in and out of school. We had about a period of six weeks where I think my daughter was in daycare for like two weeks out of the whole time because um, she just kept gets getting sent home because somebody else had COVID in the classroom. But through that period, which, you know, we could see higher levels of stress, lower levels of activity, um, people continued their engagement with mindfulness. Um, so it is a really sticky set of behaviors once people do it. Um, and then it expands out. It affects their food choices. It affects the way that they eat. It affects the way that they approach 
healthy eating and exercise and kind of wellness in general. Uh, so it's a it's a trend that's going to be here for a while, um, and it keeps growing. The good news is talking about mindfulness, as we just did, I started taking deeper breaths. <laughs> so <laughs> first step of mindfulness is to talk about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, are you involved in the path to purpose as well? I am. Yeah. So why don't you, so it, it's about, you know, it's providing data and, and I assume again, it's syndicated subscription mm -hmm. um, model, which is becoming increasingly intriguing because I have so many more questions that if I was a subscriber, we could just slice and dice all day. Uh, but it's about being mission-driven as a brand. Uh, so why don't you outline what that is, maybe discuss a few kind of key insights that you found from that research. Yeah, it's really interesting research. So um, we set out wanting to see if we could make a business case for having a mission beyond just turning a profit. Um so some kind of mission that would make the world a better place. Uh, because it's obvious that consumers are demanding that, right? Uh, so, you know, we also collected data on how, how big those numbers were. What do they mean? Um, <clears throat> and so, it, I, again, we wanted to understand the impact and quantify that impact of having a mission in terms of consumer perceptions and purchase purchasing. So hopefully we could make a business case for having a mission. And it turned out that we can. Um, so 80% of consumers believe that companies should have a mission beyond just turning a profit. Um, and 89% say they're willing to pay more money for those companies, um, companies that contribute to causes they care about. Uh, so we surveyed this particular um, project, we surveyed 5,000 people about um, 125 brands. And uh, the brands are selected to represent kind of a spectrum, both across and within industries. So it includes food and beverage, CPG, you know, apparel, automotive, social media, um, tech, financial services, uh, just a really kind of broad spectrum of, um, of American brands not just American brands either. Because um, uh, we wanted to be able to uh, compare both uh, kind of industrial fields um, and within those fields, brands within each other. So we also chose um, brands that are kind of direct competitors so that we could see differences there if they exist. Mm. Um, and there is a business case for having a mission. So um, beyond the fact that people want you to, uh, what we found is um, they actually spend more at brands that they feel like make some kind of positive impact on the world, even than ones that are neutral. Um, and again, this is across a big spectrum of brands. There's brands in, um, say, food and beverage, for instance. There's some at the top of the scale and there's some at the bottom of the scale. So it's... Uh, it, it worked out actually really nicely <laughs> in terms of the math. Uh, um, so, you know, we wanted to, we believe that measuring the, um, the impact of your mission, your purpose is something that brands should start tracking as part of their kind of traditional brand equity uh, metrics. Um, so we developed a scoring system that we call the purpose quotient or the PQ uh, so that this could be um, this could become kind of a trackable measure well, with benchmarks and diagnostic tools within it uh, that could be an addition to more traditional brand equity metrics. Um, 
but it's also just a really uh, even you know beyond that we have a lot of data within um, the study about all of these brands and how they relate to each other how consumers see them um, how well consumers can articulate the mission of a brand um, beyond just thinking that they have one uh, and it's just really fascinating um, so there's the PQ system court score itself, and then we can provide like kind of diagnostics within that um, help you understand where that score is come from, coming from, and also uh, where to build or innovate from to take it further relative to competitors. Um, now, I know that this is kind of a, we started this research again before the pandemic, but it was um, around the time that the Davos Manifesto came out it's kind of crazy to believe that that's 2020, but it happened right before the pandemic um, where uh, they kind of united behind having a purpose, stakeholder capitalism uh, beyond shareholder capitalism, right? They recognize that there's a um, declining trust in business and institutions that goes along with declining trust in government. And uh, there's this sense that kind of the system is rigged against the common person. Uh, and it just isn't a, it's not a good way to do business. Um, and consumers, consumers agree, but it is, as we know, uh, kind of a really fraught thing for a company to try to take a stand, um, even if they know that consumers are increasingly demanding it. It is, I think, you know, one thing that a lot of brands try to do is be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. And they, they, I believe they fear if they take a stand and in this world today, you take a stand on anything, the sky is blue. Someone will disagree with you and not want to talk to you. Um, that they, they fear the market that they might not get anyways, you know? Yeah. Um, that's a good way to it, Whereas you take someone like Patagonia, that they know who they are, they live it, it's the essence mm -hmm. of who they, all the way down and massive brand affinity and loyalty towards them. And I would wager that somewhere there's a document or sign on the wall or something that defines Patagonia as being very comfortable with who their audience is, but even more importantly, who their audience isn't. And saying that's okay, that group or segment might not purchase our products, but this group over here really will. Mm -hmm. and, and they'll 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 you know love us forever. Um, what 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 would you say to companies that are struggling with that? And and I think a related question to that is what we talked about a little bit with Patagonia is I think undeniably Patagonia is who they are and it is not just a two-month marketing campaign, right? They don't just make a quick donation and go, hey, we're pro-environment, you know? We're, yeah. <laughs> we're pro-human pro rights now. We gave 100 bucks over here. Uh -huh. um, they, they live it. And I think, why don't you try and sew that together the best you can using data you've seen, if, if it's there. Of You have companies that aren't willing to go all in, and it's either because of not understanding branding, to be honest, maybe laziness, uh, but also not wanting to exclude a segment, right? Mm -hmm. You take a stand, then someone's against that stand. Um, and, and also just, why don't you try and wrap that up into, into 
what it means to truly be mission driven and how to guide folks past not wanting to uh, upset or exclude potential future revenue from them. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I would. Uh, I know that's a tw- that's a two hour podcast. Yeah. That asked you about, but if you have any data that that, that supports that, uh, I, might I, I, I do think that um, uh, this is still early days in terms of uh, the idea that businesses should take kind of stakeholders rather than just shareholders into account. Um, and so uh, consumers themselves uh, aren't. Uh, quite sure how to tell that brands have a mission, what that mission is, and if they truly act on it, right? Um, So younger consumers, and again, I'm talking millennials, uh, Gen Z, um, expect much more from businesses than older ones do in terms of both words and deeds. Um, And uh, I think they're also savvier at figuring out when those are um, matching or mismatched. Um, but, um, but this idea, the, I, Americans in particular, uh, often relate to corporations in a similar way, uh, that they do to the government, right? So they talk about voting with their dollars and they kind of assume that, uh, um, companies will follow that idea. So if enough people don't like it, they kind of won't vote in terms of they won't buy it and uh, the company will have to change. Um, And they're not getting rid of that conception. The idea of kind of voting with your dollars is very compelling. People want to feel like that they're doing good um, in the world in the way that they principally interact with the world, which is purchasing things. So um, the first thing I would say is like, even if you don't do anything else, it's it's good to start now in terms of just measuring whether people think you have a mission, what that mission is, what impact it has on their perception of the brand, just so you can get ahead of the game and like kind of figure out what your mission could be uh, so that you don't get left behind. Uh, The other thing that I like to say here is that we actually asked people um, what causes they personally support and then what causes they thought um, companies and brands should support. And it's, you know, causes go on forever. So we asked a truncated list. Um, And the answers are actually a lot more practical than you might expect. Um, So we, you know, basically just plotted them out on a quad map. Uh, And um, issues that uh, consumers think that companies bear the most responsibility for are things that companies can actually directly address and address better than individuals. Um, So it's things like responsible and sustainable products. (laughs) So making sure that you're producing things in a responsible way, uh, that you take responsibility for the ways that um, production and distribution affect the environment and try to improve them, Uh, fighting climate change, Uh, empowering employees, kind of reducing inequality and building a more representative workforce, uh, using clean and sustainable energy. These are all things that uh, it's well within, you know, many companies' power uh, to address um, and consumers expect it of them because it's it's reasonable. Um, You know, the other end of the spectrum, things that consumers say, this is my responsibility and I don't expect it of companies is actually, uh, um, so there's, 
kind of personal religious causes, uh, but also, you know, care for animals, supporting the military, things that I think companies often uh, adopt because they think they're pleasing to everybody when it's not actually what consumers expect from companies. Mm. It's interesting that distinction there that consumers can make, and I'm not sure if the institutions around us do understand, which is that people have, people think that, you know, institutions, companies should tackle certain issues mm-hmm. and then others are either up to themselves to tackle perhaps at local levels or it's personal to them anyways. So they're, they're not concerned with your position or stance or support of that. That's, that's pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I think, you know, like so many things today, you know, there's these very loud fringes, um, but the vast majority of Americans, um, you know, are basically in the middle. They know we have some big collective problems and they just want to see institutions, including business, taking some responsibility and action for solving problems that they are related to. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to mission, um, it you don't have to be as driven perhaps as Patagonia, but it shouldn't be difficult to figure out what kinds of ways you can uh, look around and kind of improve your direct community or improve your employees' lives. Uh, You know, what supply chains are you part of that you can improve, things like that. I think that's what consumers are really looking for from companies. I cannot think of a higher point to end it on than your statement that most people are normal in the middle they really <laughs> and, <are>. and <laughs> that it, it should not be difficult to identify where you stand as a company. Uh, so you don't have to maybe have decades of, of track record as a Patagonia has, but it should not be difficult to find where you stand from your actions. Uh, and I would suspect to bring this full circle, that probably applies to, Mindfulness, health, fitness as well, uh, that the companies should be transparent and upfront about who they are. And while recognizing where the population is and certainly where it's going, given that the trends with the youth and whether or not you're going to be swimming upstream or downstream right. of, <laughs> of that is. So anyone that's found this interesting, uh, you could help them a lot more. You know, you, you, I think your tagline was to make challenging questions easier. Um, that's our goal. That, that, that's your, your goal. So it's murphyresearch.com. I want to give a recommendation as well. Uh, and apparently several thousands of people agree with me to give a follow on LinkedIn, where a lot of research uh, is posted quite regularly, almost on a weekly basis, so that this can just show right up in your feed. Um, there's, there's all sorts of audio. There's there's a lots of different stuff. So it makes it easy uh, to get some of these takeaways delivered to you. And then, of course, you have subscription services to these, at least these two syndicated research programs. But uh, it only scratches the surface with which Murphy Research will do. And I think probably one of the cooler things is, is that you can tell that you really enjoy your job. Uh, I do. <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's just, it's it sounds like you wake up every day learning something new, finding out something. And, and as an investigator, I think you have kind of this investigative quality. Uh, it must be pretty fulfilling to be just have all this data coming at you to be able to process and, and 
in most cases, help companies move move forward in what I at least identify as a positive direction. It is fun. I do enjoy it. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, again, it's murphyresearch.com. Uh, Sarah Marion, PhD. I should have gotten that in there. And again, I would give it a follow on LinkedIn in particular. I said over 5,000 people agree with me. So that information can just come at you and become a habit. So thank you very much again for joining us, Sarah, and joining all the, sharing all these insights. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Beyond the Shelf, presented by Chef's Best. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy listening to episodes.